The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You betcha. Disability Law Show. We are back. John Scholes, I simply, uh, I do the easy thing. I just steer the ship. It's got to be filled with all the information. That comes from our good pal Martin Willems. You want to reach out to Martin anytime, Sam Firu to Mark and LLP, you can. That is one 855 help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address. And for all other concerns, you can go to pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca too. All right, Martin, as normal, we got a ton of emails and questions coming through and have been building for the last week or so. But uh, you got a couple things to discuss first off the top of the week that was, pal. What's going on? That's right, John. Yes, thanks. Uh, we've had over the past few weeks, you know, sometimes things come in waves. And I've had a bunch of people phone me and our team asking about insurance claims that had been denied or where policies had been cancelled, either when the person was applying for individual coverage or when they were applying to have disability coverage on the individual or mortgage coverages through the bank. So I'm going to speak about this in two, two parts. Let's speak about the first one, which would be you want to apply for individual coverage. In other words, you don't have coverage through your employer You may be self-employed. You may be working as a doctor or a lawyer or as a business person who own your own business. And now you want to apply for disability coverage or life insurance coverage or critical illness coverage with an insurance company. The process usually goes like this. You would deal with a broker. The broker would potentially come to your house. There's an application process which you have to follow, which includes completing a medical questionnaire Sometimes I have a medical form and an application process which you have to use to apply. And in those documents, there are questions regarding your medical history. It may be things like, in the past five years, have you any ever had any indication or received any treatment or consulted a doctor or taking medications for things like high blood pressure or high cholesterol, or did you see anybody related to your anxiety? So there's a lot of questions regarding your medical history. The reason why those questions are asked is the insurance company is going to, once they receive it, give it to their underwriting department, and they will then make a decision whether, based on the information that you have shared with them, you are an acceptable risk for them to issue insurance on. The ones, the people that I've been speaking to have, uh, and it's not just the past two weeks, I mean, like I said, they come in waves, but there's been a lot of them recently where people have had, when they do become disabled after they've had this coverage in place, this individual coverage, the insurance company, once they look at the claim, they may look at the pre-existing coverage or medical records before the person took out the coverage. In other words, they're doing what is called a contestability review. They're doing an investigation as to whether the person was accurate when they provided the information on those forms in order to get the coverage in the first place. Lots of them would say to me, well, the insurance company has now denied my claim, and even worse, they've completely cancelled my coverage. Even though my disability is completely unrelated to the reason why the insurance company has denied my coverage. So I'll use an example. The person may have been diagnosed with cancer and cannot work, 
And the reason why the insurance company is denying the uh, claim and voiding the coverage is they looked at the evidence that was submitted prior to applying for the coverage. The, the um, evidence was, was including bills of the person's medical history. And the insurance company says, well, you should have answered yes to this question because you saw the doctor on this date and there was a finding based on some blood tests that you had elevated cholesterol. And had we known that, we not would not have issued the coverage. Therefore, we are now terminating your coverage, your policy entirely, and we're denying your claim. So the question then becomes, what can they do about it? And it really depends on the timeline. So we, I know we've spoken about this before, but it's again important to have this discussion so that anybody who listens to this, when you do apply for coverage, I'm not speaking about when you're applying for disability benefits. I'm speaking about when you as an individual go out and you apply to have coverage, to purchase coverage with an insurance company. It is crucial that you complete the medical questionnaire accurately. And if you're not sure, about whether a response should be yes or no. Maybe have a meeting with your family doctor and go through it with them. See, did I in fact have any indication of high cholesterol within the last five years? Because people forget things, right? It, it, it depends on what was noted in those clinical records. And this again is of interest and pertains to disability coverage, life insurance coverage, and critical illness coverage. I'll use another example. So the person goes and they apply for coverage. They get this coverage January of 2020. In March of 2022, in other words, within the first two years of having coverage, they go off work because of a disability. The insurance company then says, we're going to conduct a, con a contestability review. They look at the clinical records and find that the person did not accurately complete the forms by not disclosing certain pertinent medical information. If it is within the first two years in BC and Alberta specifically, then the only thing the insurance company has to do is say that if we had known the accurate information that you actually did have investigations related to your cholesterol and there was a finding of elevated cholesterol, we would not have issued the coverage. In other words, it was material to our decision. It would have been material to our decision to underwrite the coverage. That's within the first two years based on legislation in BC and Alberta. So in other words, if you go off work within the first two years of having coverage and you did not, you they use the word misrepresentation, but obviously sometimes it's innocent. The insurance company didn't know about some of the medical history. They would say, was it material to our decision? If it was, we're going to cancel the coverage. But if the coverage had been in place for more than two years, then the insurance company has to prove that there, what is, there was what is called a fraudulent misrepresentation, which means that you deliberately did not provide them with accurate information or that you were willfully blind when you completed the forms. So that's a much more difficult thing for the insurance company to prove. Yet I see many cases denied based on that. After the person had had the coverage for two years, they go off work, maybe they do it three years or four years after. Then the insurance company says, oh, no, you committed a fraudulent misrepresentation. For those people, if that happens, I want you to understand that there may be options. So reach out to us if you do have a claim which was denied and where the insurance company terminated your coverage. In other words, your policy entirely, which is a big thing right now, and you no longer have coverage. If that happens, we would want to have a look at what that policy says. And more importantly, 
we want to look at what information you did disclose and what information they say you did not disclose. Because then it's no longer just was it material to their decision. It is you actually have had to commit a fraudulent misrepresentation in order for them to contest the validity of the coverage that you have in place. And again, I speak to quite a, I've spoken to quite a few people with this type of problem in the past few weeks. And there's a bunch of them whom we're going to be able to help because of this issue. It's not easy for the insurance company to prove fraud. And people forget things. Like they forget that they had some blood tests three years ago or four years ago. And they're actually not even on medication for what the findings were. The other one that I wanted to speak about is mortgage insurance. Same thing, but these ones, they're difficult because you sometimes you just have to complete a few or respond to a few questions over the phone. And these mortgage insurance coverages, they're not individual coverages like when you apply to the insurance company to purchase your own policy. They're covered through a master policy. Then the insurance company would say, if we had known anything related to your medical history that you did not disclose, we would not have issued coverage because they cannot rate your policy. In other words, they cannot say, okay, we know that you've had this condition, so we're going to issue the coverage, but we're going to do it at a higher premium or we're going to exclude certain conditions. So be very, very careful. When you go to the bank and you are offered mortgage insurance, mortgage disability insurance, that you read those questions that they ask of you very carefully and ask questions of the person who is completing the forms with you. Or if you're doing it over the phone, make sure that you understand the question and that you answer it accurately. Because if there's any misrepresentation in those, you may be looking at a denial of your coverage, which could be seriously detrimental to you. So that's the story for the week. I know we're going to get into emails in a minute, but I want people to be very careful when they apply for coverages, be it mortgage or individual policies that they apply for. Make sure that you are accurate when you complete those forms because it can come back to bite you in a very bad way if you don't. And if they, if you find that your claim has been denied, either because it was a material misrepresentation or where the insurance company says it was fraudulent misrepresentation, don't feel intimidated by that. Reach out to us. We can offer you a free consultation and review those with you. And at least if we say that we cannot help you, then at least you know that you reached out and you've got some idea as to where to go with this. But in many instances, we can. So again, if you've got this issue, reach out to us. Yeah, those policies, man, can be really confusing. So uh, good advice there for sure. It's never fun to read, but you guys have done so many of these and been through so many of these cases, Martin, you can help for sure. To reach out, uh, as we get into a short break, I want to get back in your emails on the other side, but uh, one 821 5900 is the number. The email address we're about to go to is help at disabilityrights.ca, and we'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Disability Law Show, that's where you have arrived. Thank you so much. If you just tuned in, uh, stick around for the next uh, little while. we got a lot of questions through email to get through, and some of, the me, uh, some of these may answer some questions you have. If not, you can always send them along first. That's help at disabilityrights.ca. And if you want to leapfrog that, go right to a phone call. Martin and his team always ready to talk. It won't cost you anything just to pick up a phone and ask some questions. one 8 855-821-5900. First question, real simple, Martin. Uh, short, succinct, and to the point, was laid off and lost my LTD benefits. Now what? 
Okay, so this is interesting because there are two ways of looking at this question. The first one is, if the person had been working, then is laid off, and then afterwards wanted to apply for LTD benefits, maybe they were laid off because of their medical condition, right? There still may be a claim to pursue there. If it is the person was receiving long-term disability benefits, and then subsequently the employer laid them off with respect to their employment, and they lost their LTD benefits, that should not be a reason for you to um, lose benefits. In other words, for the insurance company to deny your claim or terminate your claim as it had been paid up until the point that you're being laid off. Mm -hmm. That cannot be the reason. So lots of times people don't understand why their claims are denied. The insurance company sends them a letter and may say that there's insufficient evidence or there may be some contractual provision that the insurance company is relying on. So same in this instance. If you're not sure why this happened, reach out to us and we'll review the claim with you and the denial letter with you. And some, and also look at the policy, right? It is helpful in my mind and everybody who I speak with to have somebody review the claim and the denial letter with you so that you understand why your claim is being denied. This happens so often when I sit down with somebody and say, well, do you understand what happened here? And they try to verbalize what happened, but it isn't accurate. Then we go through the letter paragraph by paragraph and we explain to them, these are the issues and these are your options. These are the things that you can do. These are the things that might be missing. Sometimes it is a doctor who didn't complete the forms accurately or did not provide sufficient evidence. And sometimes it's just the insurance company not accepting what the doctor says, right? But in this case, if your claim was denied because you were laid off, that's not how this works. Your claim, in other words, if you were to be employed, which is clearly what had happened here, and you become disabled on day X, and you submit a claim to the insurance company for benefits, three weeks later, date Y, you get terminated. That should have no effect on your eligibility and your entitlement to benefits because your claim itself started vested when you still had coverage under the policy. So my advice to this person is contact us because we would definitely need more information and we can go through it with you. So at least at the end, you can make an informed decision as to how you want to proceed once you understand what your options are. And again, that email, of course, you got it, but the phone number, just in case you want to carry on uh, with that conversation with Martin and his crew, one 821 right, working on down the line here. Pal says, uh, Martin, I have a critical illness policy. I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. The insurer said I had signs and investigations three years ago, which led to the current diagnosis. They're saying my claim is excluded because of the investigations I had before my coverage became effective. My doctors do not agree with this. I was not diagnosed with MS until this year. My policy became effective January 2020, and I had investigations for blurry vision in uh, November of 2019. What do you think? Okay, so these critical illness policies, like anything, like disability and life insurance, they're all contracts, but they can be tricky, right? They can be extremely technical. And critical illness coverages may provide that if during a certain period of time, be at 90 days before you had the critical illness coverage, if you had any investigations that led to a critical illness, that it may be denied. Now, my position on these would be, if an insurance company 
is going to deny a claim because they're relying on a provision within the meaning of the policy like this where they must say you had signs or symptoms of something that was diagnosed years later therefore we're going to deny your claim my position is if the insurance company wants to do that they have the duty to prove that that is in actual fact more probable than not if you submit a claim to an insurance company you have to prove that you're entitled to it so you have the duty to prove that you must be paid but when an insurance company in a case like this is relying on a provision in the policy that they say will allow them not to pay they have the duty to prove it and in this case you know blurry vision is a symptom of multiple sclerosis many people have different symptoms you may have had blurry vision for many other reasons there may have been you know it, it could have been anything sure. so you the insurance company in my mind would have to have sufficient evidence to prove that more likely than not that was a symptom or an indication or an investigation of multiple sclerosis that was made years later these are the exact type of claims that we get involved in because it isn't and i've said this so many times do not just accept once the insurance company has denied your claim that their word is law and that what they've decided is completely accurate many times insurance companies will deny cases like these because they may find an avenue or there may be some indication that it may be what they are saying it is but which it actually isn't big and this is where doctors come into the picture you've just in this email said to us that your doctors do not agree and there's a reason why the doctors don't agree because the symptom or the investigation that you had may have resulted in many different findings or may have had a cause that is not related to multiple sclerosis. So I, on, listening to this and reading this, I honestly think that there is something to do about this and we should be able to assist this person. So I suggest that they do reach out to us by phone and we can have a discussion as to the options. And again, that phone number, one 855 All right, talking, buddy. Got a long one here coming up. Says, uh, guys, love the show. Listen, the insurance company is denying my claim for LTD benefits because of an apparent anonymous tip that led them to do surveillance of me. The surveillance showed me taking out my garbage bins, cleaning my garage, driving my kids to school. My disability waxes and wanes. The surveillance did not see me having to lie down and recover for hours after any activity where I exert myself. It also does not not show me in my depressive state where I have uh, to force myself to get out of bed and do things. This has worsened my mental health, which has in turn worsened my physical conditions. What do you guys think? Again, this is something that we see every now and again. Insurance companies do conduct surveillance and people say to me, can they or can they not? They can, but obviously within certain parameters. So, and it's unfortunate because somebody may be on claim. In other words, they may be receiving disability benefits. There may be somebody in their life who doesn't like them as a mean streak and then tries to undermine their financial security by making an anonymous tip to the insurance company. They then act on that, conduct surveillance, and find that in their minds, what they're seeing on the surveillance is not consistent with the restrictions, the limitations, and the functional impairment being reported by the claimant, the person currently on claim, in other words, receiving benefits. I've seen this happen many times, and it's true what this person has said. It, to be on claim, right, when you have a disability, it doesn't mean that you are bed-bound necessarily. Mm. 
or that you cannot do anything. It means that you cannot perform the essential duties of your occupation or any occupation, depending on the phase where you are in the policy. And with mental health cases, as with some chronic pain cases, sometimes people have good days versus bad days. I've spoken to many people who it is a struggle for that they cannot do certain things because of their disability and they get frustrated and they try to do something and then they pay for it by not having by not being as active as they're able to do be the days that followed because they've suffered an exacerbation or you may have somebody who has their depression may be a bit better sunny day they had a good sleep they may be able to do a bit more depends on the circumstances of every person when i look at surveillance which I do often when we do pursue a legal claim, that surveillance has to be disclosed to me. I review the surveillance. Sometimes it would be something like this. The insurance company may have conducted surveillance through an investigator for five days. On two of those days, they see the person being active, doing things that they generally say that they cannot do. But in the next three days, they don't leave the house. Why is that? Why don't you comment on that part of it? that we saw you do these things, but we know that you didn't even leave the house for the next three days because it's consistent with what people say. I was able to do a few things, but then I had to rest the next few days, right? When we're looking at a disability claim, we're looking at can a person reliably and consistently perform the duties of their occupation or any other occupation. The fact that you're able to take out your garbage bins, that you were driving your kids to school and maybe then had to take a rest, go for a nap, or lie down to recover because your pain condition has been exacerbated. That still supports disability, right? So when we look at these cases and when insurance companies look at these cases, they should do the same. You have to look at the whole picture globally, right? It's not the person says they cannot get out of bed. And then once you see them out of bed, they get denied. It is, they have good days, they have bad days. So I often, when I look at these, I will say to the insurance company, when we're in a position where we're negotiating settlement, where are the other three days? Where, why is there no surveillance for those days? So it's not just as important to say what is on that surveillance. It is also important to say what is not on the surveillance because your, your investigator was there. They were sitting outside the house for two days and they didn't even leave the house. Why is that? So to this person, unfortunately, this has happened. I'm sorry to hear that. And it's really unfortunate that we came around as a result of an anonymous tip. But reach out to us again, and we can look at this with you and discuss your options, which often would be we would pursue a legal claim on behalf of this person. And with that, uh, we're going to go to a short break here momentarily, guys. But uh, you always want to reach out. Sometimes these matters, you hear them on the radio, but it's something you want to discuss in private. That's no problem. If you don't want your email read, that's okay. You can uh, leapfrog that to a phone call. I'm going to give you some contact information now. we got uh, so much more to go. It's one uh, 855 If you have not used this resource yet, it's called MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Quite simply, you go there anonymously. You can type in your questions for Martin and his team to be answered uh, shortly. There's a, it's a searchable uh, database. That's the way the algorithm works. So if something you're thinking of may have been asked 
previously. You can search it. That'll save you uh, a bunch of time, right? If not, leave your questions there. They will get answered. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com. And as we get to more email after a short break, send those along. We read them each week, and sometimes we just go through the mailbox, try to empty as much as we can. That would be help at disabilityrights.ca. And we continue momentarily right here on the Disability Law Show. Stick around. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Disability Law Show right here, right now. Thank you for joining us. If you got time to catch the rest of the hour, we'd love it. And you can always reach out afterwards if something comes to mind after the show that you thought, oh, I should have emailed that to Martin and his team. You can anytime. It might appear in a future show as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone call if you want to go right there is one 821 5900 and uh, smart, easy, and uh, readily available, concise facts about LTD might answer a lot of questions too. No need to uh, sit around and wait. Go to ltdfaq.ca. All right. Next email coming up, Martin. Goes like this. Guys was on LTD for a physical impairment and returned back to work, then developed a potential mental illness within the six-month window. Would my LTD claim be a continuance or a new LTD claim? We are pending tests to identify the issue slash root cause and potential relation to the first diagnosis. Martin, what do you think, pal? This is an interesting question. So the reason why this person is asking the question is the policies basically all group policies will have something called a recurrence provision or a recurrence clause. And as with everything, it depends on the wording of this specific policy because not all recurrence provision clauses read the same. So this is how it generally works. If you go off work because of, say, a physical issue, like what happened here, then you go back to work and you're working your regular hours your regular schedule, your regular duties, and you go off work within the first six months of your return due to the same condition or even a related condition, then it may be deemed that your disability claim is a continuation of the previous claim. In other words, you do not need to satisfy a new waiting period, which is often the case, right? So if you do file a claim with an insurance company, for long-term disability benefits, there's something called an elimination period or a waiting period and or a qualifying period. It's the same thing. It really is you may need to be off work for, depends on how long that waiting period is. Generally, it's 119 days. Sometimes it may be six months. Sometimes it may even be a year. If it's a year, it's generally because the, the employer is self-funding the short-term disability benefits. But going back to what I'm saying, there's a waiting period to qualify for LTD benefits. If it is, in this case, that the disability is due to the same illness or a related condition, it very likely may be a continuation of the previous claim, which means that the person doesn't have to re-qualify. In other words, they have to exhaust the waiting period, which would be another 119 days before they can get paid again. If it is an entirely different diagnosis, it may be a brand new claim where you would have to qualify. In other words, you have to wait through the waiting period before you get your LTD benefits. And so the long answer to this, I suppose the short answer to this is we really need to see what the policy says. 
And then ultimately there's some question here as to whether there is a relation because between the first diagnosis, which is a physical one, and a potential med mental illness. If there is some correlation between the two or relation between the two, it may still be that it is a continuation because you went off work within the first six months, but it depends on the language of your policy. Okay, let's keep moving on. Lots of emails to get through. This one's a good one. Martin says, guys, I'm on LTD. An expensive treatment was requested by my psychologist. Now the insurance company is refusing to cover the expenses. Am I obligated to undergo the treatment and pay for it myself? Okay, so <laughs> how many times am I in a situation where other lawyers argue with me about this exact thing? Not necessarily because it's an expensive treatment, but because the insurance company is saying to you, under the terms of your policy, yeah. which is the contract, you have to be under the regular care of a physician and follow through with appropriate treatment. So at the end of the insurer, where they're saying, but here the person is on LTD, they will say, well, we're not going to cover this treatment, which is a bit surprising, um, because if they were to cover it, maybe the person would be able to get back to work. But there is no duty on the insurance company to pay for treatment under a long-term disability policy. They would only do it if they feel that it is within their interest. In other words, they will do a cost-benefit analysis. If we pay for treatment, say 12 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy, we don't need to do that, but we're going to do that because at the end of that 12 sessions, we're going to expect that this person is ready to go back to work. So financially, it is in our interest. If we pay that, pay the person for another two or three months, versus if we do not do that, then they may be on claim for another year or so. So a cost-benefit analysis, it's in our interest to pay for this, but there's no duty in them. Here is a bit different, and the reason I suspect that the insurance company is not paying for this treatment or not offering to pay for this treatment is because this person says it is an expensive treatment requested by the psychologist. Now, of course, they are receiving LTD benefits. I've seen cases where the insurance company has denied the person saying that, well, you should have been doing all these treatments, yet you're not, therefore we're going to deny you. Remember, long-term disability benefits are paid at a certain percentage. Right. of what the person was earning before they became disabled. So you may have been used to living with your 100% salary. Now it's been reduced to 60%. And on top of that, you still have to pay all your expenses. And now you have to go pay for treatment. So I would suggest the first thing to do here is see how much can be paid through your extended health if you do have extended health. And if you do not, and you cannot afford it, just be clear with the insurance company saying that, I'm willing to attend this treatment, but I don't have the financial means to do so. And if they were to deny you based on the fact that you're not doing it, they cannot have it both ways, right? So I've, I've, there's some case law on this as well, where an insurance company denied a person benefits. Later on, there was a recommendation made by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, actually, that the person should go through significant counseling. They were not receiving any benefits because the insurance company had denied them. When the claim went into a legal claim, the lawyer acting for the insurance company said, well, we're taking the position that your client is not being appropriately treated huh. because they're not following through with this treatment recommendation to do counseling. Right. And the judge in that case said, look, you cannot have it both ways. If you had paid the treatment, maybe 
they would have been able to to afford this if you had paid the benefit rather they would have been able to afford the treatment but the fact that you've denied this claim and are insisting that they have to do the treatment they don't have the financial means so you cannot have it both ways and we i raise this argument all the time because i hear from insurers all the time that your client is not properly being treated and then well if you had paid them maybe they would have been able to do so now they don't have any money they cannot even pay their mortgage How on earth are they going to afford to go for treatment so it really is not in my mind a proper position to take but it will be an ongoing fight and luckily for our clients they have us to fight that fight for them I think we had time for one more email before we uh, take one more break, but uh, let's get into it anyway. Martin, uh, the number, by the way, outside the show, one 821 5900 says, I've been off work since April 2023 this year with pain to my right arm, neck, and shoulder due to my job. I do 100% mousing and keyboarding in my job. My work says that my injury is not work-related. I have pain shooting down my arm and experiencing numbness and tingling in the hand. Uh, I am doing all suggested treatments rec- uh, recommended by doctor and have spent hundreds of dollars hundreds of dollars total on those i have mild to severe carpal tunnel as well currently on std but will run out and be entering the ltd phase i've submitted all paperwork and waiting to hear back from the insurance company do i have a good case uh for someone uh if i'm denied so the question as with any disability claim is are you disabled from performing the essential duties of your occupation And if your occupation is to do a lot of mousing and keyboarding, as this person says, it says 100%, and they now have potential carpal tunnel syndrome, and they're doing further investigations, he's done a lot of treatment with respect to this condition. If the claim is denied, the question is going to be, why? Because you need your hands and your arms in order to perform these duties. And if you cannot, due to restrictions and limitations, and the insurance company denies you, most definitely, in my mind, yes, you have a good case to pursue reach out to us because they will offer you certain options. One would be an appeal. But remember, it's the same entity who denied your claim who's now saying, well, come back to us and give us more information. Whereas when we pursue legal claims, we act on your behalf and you don't have to deal with the insurance company longer. All communications go through us. Yeah, we're not a big fan of that appeal process for sure. Let's take a short break and into a bit more here. But in the meantime, here is that email, help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number 1-855-821-5900. More of your emails are coming up in the Disability Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we're back with the Disability Law Show. A few, uh, few good uh, minutes to go here. Maybe we'll get through a couple more emails. Uh, first one, uh, this segment's going to be really quick. Martin, here it goes. Can I go to school while on disability? Period. Remember... When you make a claim for disability benefits, you have to prove that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation. Some people may say, I cannot do it because I have a mental health illness or some other condition that impacts my ability to focus, to concentrate, to multitask, to comprehend new information, which is normally the case when there is a mental health illness. The fact that you're going to go to school, in theory, yes, you can do it by all means, but it may raise questions on the side of the insurance company that if you are able to go to school studying comprehending new information writing tests and depending on how you do in those tests the insurance company may look at them and say well if you're able to this why can you not work 
right? It's not as simple as that, but that's one of the things that pop up. On the other end, there's also quite often this argument that's raised by insurance companies that during that own occupation phase, if the person cannot work in their own occupation, why are they not taking steps to re-qualify or re-educate themselves um, so that they can work in a, another occupation? So it's almost a catch-22 because if you do it, then they say, well, clearly you've got some function, you've got some capacity, so you'll be working. And if you don't do it, then they say, well, you didn't take steps to do that so that you could go back into another occupation. I suppose it really depends on the circumstances. It depends on the medical condition, your restrictions and limitations. What is it that you do when you say you want to go to school? Is it that you're doing a much reduced course load versus taking four subjects you're just taking one you're gaining accommodation i've seen this all happen before in various cases right i've seen people who went to class where the lights were lowered for them they were given extra time to study they were given extra time to complete the exams uh, they had disability accommodations with the entity, the college or the university, whoever they were studying through. So it depends on all those questions. But in theory, as a simple question, yes, you can go to school, but you would want to know how that's going to impact your disability claim and maybe get your doctor to sign off on that as well. Most definitely, I would recommend having a discussion with a disability lawyer to just understand what it is that you are planning to do do you have the medical sign-off to do that? What, where are you at now with respect to your disability? What are the restrictions and limitations? It's different, of course, if somebody is improving and they're starting to get to a point where they maybe just need a three or four months left on their LTD claim. That, of course, they would expect you to take certain steps, but it really is a factual analysis. So we would need some more detail to make a to at least give you an opinion on whether... It is a good idea. So reach out by phone, and uh, that's probably the way to continue that conversation. Thanks for the really short email, but uh, there you go, one 821 5900 Next one, not as short, so let's get through this in our last few minutes here. Uh, Martin says, guys, I'm currently on short-term disability for anxiety and depression, and my doctor has specified a return to work date and provided my insurance company with clinical notes. However, my insurance company has gotten back to me saying that we have not provided enough medical evidence, and the insurance company is making me go back to work right away instead of listening to my doctors the insurance company said i can submit more medical evidence to appeal but when asked what kind of medical evidence they're looking for well they refuse to answer what additional medical evidence does my doctor need to provide in order for my insurance provider to comply with what my doctor has indicated that i cannot return back to work until later for anxiety and depression that's the claim wow well indeed well so before I go into those details, first thing, an insurance company has what is called a duty of good faith, right? That means you have to assess claims properly and reasonably. Remember, as the insurer, you are dealing with claims all the time. You know how you're going to assess them. You know what information you're looking for. The person making the claim at the other end is living with anxiety and depression. So they're already not well. They're struggling, right? Things like this where they are being forced to return to work because you have now denied their claim, no longer paying them benefits, so they have financial stress as well. And they're simply asking you, 
what information do you need now that you have denied my claim and you refuse to answer? That's not abiding by your duty of good faith. It simply isn't. Insurers, through their case managers, should assist people by providing them information as to what is required. And yes, we're speaking about this appeal process again. They've denied your claim. Now they want you to potentially appeal, but they're not telling you what you need to provide them. I'm not sure whether that's a process that I would follow through. I would suggest that you contact us and that we have a discussion with you as to what other options you may have, which may include pursuing a legal claim, right? The other thing that I wanted to say is listen to your doctor. If your doctor is saying that you are not able to return to work at this time, follow your doctor's advice. Don't be intimidated by the insurance company. Lastly, you're asking what information your doctor could provide in order to support that you cannot return back to work. And this is a good question. Go have a discussion with your doctor, be it the psychiatrist or family doctor, and maybe if you've got both of them, have both of them weigh in. You want them to write a letter and support why it is that you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation. What are your restrictions? What are your limitations? What medications are you taking? Do you have, we've already spoken about anxiety, how does it manifest itself? How has the denial impacted your mood, your depression, your anxiety? What medications are you taking and how do those impact your mental health and your cognitive functioning? So when doctors write letters, it should not be my, my patient cannot come back to work. I'm booking them all for a medical condition. It has to be, why is that the case? What are the restrictions? What are the limitations? And very importantly, if they are forced to return to work at an earlier date than when they are ready, that may lead to a significant exacerbation or worsening of the, um, the condition to the extent that the person may have to be off work for a longer period of time. That's what I generally see. I'm not saying tell the doctor that this is what has to be written. Of course, it has to be the doctor's opinion. But reading through this, that likely is what the doctor will be feeling. And that should be submitted uh, committed to writing if that's where you were going to go with this. But I do suggest reaching out to us. Anybody in our team, as you know, we've got offices through Alberta, Ontario, BC, elsewhere in Canada, other than Quebec and the territories. And we should be able to assist you, at least with giving you an opinion as to what your options are. Good stuff, man. That's all we got time for on the show this hour. But uh, we always invite you to send along your emails and questions for a future show for sure. In the meantime, here's how you do it. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Phone number one more time, 1-855-821-5900. And for any other questions, mydisabilityquestions.com and pocketdisabilitylawyer. That's a good one, .ca. You can use that freely and anonymously as well. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.